0: Well, hey there and welcome to episode number 87 of Groove, the No Trouble Podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show.
1: So who are you and what do you do? My name is Kasim Sultan. I am a singer, songwriter, musician, bass player, guitar player, keyboard player. uh, And I've been doing this for a very, very long time. I
0: was going to say your first time on the bass, isn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Not a lot. we're going to no.
0: talk. I mean, your story is incredible. The bands you played with, the gigs you've played with, the albums you played on. It's an astonishing story for those who, who don't know you. I'm, I'm most curious. I think we should just go a little bit back to the early, early beginnings. And I'm curious where you first discovered the bass, how you first held it. How did it come into your life, this instrument?
1: Well, I started off as a guitar player. Um uh, my dad was a hobbyist. And he had a guitar and 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 I kind of took an interest in it and uh then somewhere around I guess 8 years old, uh uh 8 or maybe 8 or 9 years old, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and decided that that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I made that conscious decision at that point and never looked back. Um, I had taken some guitar lessons, but I really wasn't the best student in the whole world. So uh, I decided after six months of guitar lessons that I was going to teach myself. And I set about uh, listening to the records that were popular at that time—early, um, maybe early, early '60s, mid '60s—and um, just picking out uh, chord changes and learning how to how to play chords through a couple of basic song books. Mel Bay was a very, very popular, um, beginners guitar playing book in any case. Um, and I fancied myself a, a rhythm guitar player. Um, and these, uh, these kids moved in around the block from where my folks lived at the time. And they wanted to start a band. They were already guitar players, a brother, uh, two brothers, and they needed a bass player. And they said, if you want to be in the band, uh, you're, you're going to have to be the bass player. And I really wanted to to work with them because they were kind of hotshot guitar players from the Brooklyn area. And I we lived on Staten Island at the time, Staten Island in New York City. And so I uh, sold the guitar that my dad bought me a few Christmases earlier and, uh, and bought a bass and uh, set about learning how to play bass guitar and being the bass player. About two years after um, – I did that. They they fired me from the band and uh, because I didn't have an amplifier. (laughs) I (laughs) I didn't come from a very rich family. My my folks, uh, while they encouraged my my artistic side, they they weren't about to just, you know, outlay money for what they viewed as a possible a potential hobby. Um, in any case, uh, I, I went home. I'll never forget it. As long as I live, I cried all the way home, the three blocks home. And I, and I promised myself that I would, uh, I would not give up. I would, I, I, would sh- I would become an even better bass player uh, and maybe buy an amplifier one day. And that's what I did. Um, and that's how I started as, as a bass player.
0: Ah, so you, you made the shift from George to Paul pretty quickly. It sounds like,
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I just figured that, uh, there, there were a lot more guitar players than there were bass players. So, uh, so the, the chances that you were going to get into another band were, were, were higher if you were a, a, a more of a rare commodity, <laughs> you know? So, uh, so being a bass player, at, was, uh, was, was advantageous. And then on top of that was, was singing was another, uh, plus, uh, in the, uh, another, you know, mark in the plus column, if you will. So, uh, I, I was a singer as well because not only because, um, it, you know, I, I just gravitated towards that, but because nobody else wanted to do that. You know, nobody else wanted the responsibility of being a singer in the band. So I said, well, fine, if nobody wants to do it, I'll do it. And uh, and that helped me tremendously being a number one, being a bass player. And number two, you know, not not uh, being squeamish about taking on vocal responsibilities.
0: At what point did you realize? I mean, I have an acumen for this. I want to, you know, more than just the fame of seeing the Beatles and wanting girls Mm -hmm. screaming for you. There's talent, there's playing, there's perseverance at what point do you start going, this is actually serious, this is real?
1: Oh, it wasn't until my late teens that I decided that, uh, you know, I had, I had some, uh, talent and, uh, and I wasn't bad at what I did. And I was gain I was gaining momentum, uh, as a musician and, uh, working with other artists. I was fascinated with r- the recording process and how, how records were made and, and, and uh, you know, over, overdubbing and multi-tracking, which was just coming into being at that time in the sixties, uh, and early seventies. And, uh, uh, the just the the, the the whole idea of 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 playing music and uh, and, and making a, uh, making a life out of it was uh, just appealed tremendously to me, more so I guess than my buddies uh, and the, and the kids that I grew up with who uh, maybe had had a similar passion for it, but were more realistic about the the chances of them actually becoming a professional musician. I was, I I was, you know, come hell or high water, uh, that's what I was going to do. Uh, and, uh, luckily my, my folks kind of put up with it until I started making a living at it, um, in my late teens, albeit very, very small living, uh, because I was still at at their house. But, um, I, I, you know, I, I guess, If I had if if I had reached a a point where I was uh, I was hitting a wall, it might have been a different story. And maybe I would have kind of uh, explored other options for myself. But uh, but I kept gaining ground. I kept getting uh, a better gig and and being in a better band. And uh, until I got my my first huge break when i was 20 years old which was uh, you know like kind of early for uh, a musician to get uh, get in a band that was making records and touring all over the world
0: i mean yeah it, it feels kind of early and i'm wondering are your parents having that conversation with you about college versus this music hobby you have or was it really clear to them that no this is this is the path that you're going down
1: yeah, well, my dad, uh, as as supportive as he was and he was my biggest champion uh, in, in in my pursuit of a career in music, uh, there there did come a point where he said, either you get a job or you go back to school. Uh, I, and I think that was around 17 and a half or 18. Um, and at that time, I started playing with a with a girl uh, by the name of Cherry Vanilla in Manhattan. And she was kind of. Really uh, hooked into the music scene in New York City, and it opened a a whole new set of of doors for me that uh, that wound up getting me the gig with Todd Rundgren. But uh, but I, uh, you know, I, I mean, I listen, I was only making a few hundred dollars a month if I was lucky, but it was something. It, I, I wasn't putting my my amplifier and guitar in a in a shopping cart and rolling it down to the local high school to play, uh, you know, a, a, a high school dance, uh, you know, and come home with fifteen or twenty dollars in my pocket. I was uh, I was, you know, playing in Manhattan at places like Trudy Heller's and Max's Kansas City upstairs, uh, and uh, and I was making I, I was making some strides in in turning. It into a career. Um, so my, I think my dad saw that and he was like, okay, well, you know, you, you gave yourself just a little reprieve, maybe, you know, maybe not, not for the next couple of years, but for right now, I'm going to leave you alone and let you, uh, and, and see how this all pans out for you. Yes. Um,
0: some state of executions last longer than others.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so I did, I, I did get that. And, uh, and, and then things just kind of the stars align and, and, uh, and I wound up in a, in a very successful band.
0: So let's talk about that. You, you dropped the name Todd Rundgren. It's a huge part of your history, a huge part of rock and roll history. What is that first meeting like? What is the conversation like? Is it clear that there's this utopia thing happening? How does this all come together?
1: Well, funny enough, uh, my sister, uh, I'm the oldest of four, and, and the next in line is my sister. And she was a big music fan uh, when we were growing up, and she had uh, a couple of uh, of, of albums um, from Todd. I think it was Runt uh, and maybe um, – maybe Naz, something like that. I'm not, not entirely sure, but I listened to it and it didn't really speak to me. Um, I, I didn't find it that all that interesting. I was, I was more or less into uh, a British invasion at that time and Jeff Beck and Led Zeppelin and, uh, Black Sabbathism uh, in fact, and, uh, uh, other bands like, um, the James gang and, and a lot of uh, kind of diverse stuff. So I, I, I really didn't, uh, I didn't gravitate towards the the kind of music that Todd was doing at that time, which was kind of torch songs, uh, very, you know, Carol King, Lauren Nero ish. Um, but in any case, um, I, the first meeting that I had with Todd was, um, I didn't even meet Todd to begin with. I, I, I was, uh, had gone to my friend's house or a guy by the name of Earl Slick, who was at that time playing with David Bowie? Uh, he was on a tr- he was going to England to work on his first solo record. And uh, he needed a ride to the airport, and me and a buddy uh, went over to his house, which was about three blocks from where my parents lived. Uh, and we walked into the door to give him a lift over to JFK. And the first thing that he said to both of us was, um, do do either one of you guys want to audition for Todd Rundgren's band? He needs a bass player. My friend who I was with at the time was also a bass player. And I I said, yeah, I'd I'd love to do it. He said, well, if you call Michael Kamen when we get to JFK, tell him that you're interested in the gig. I'm sure he will uh, recommend you uh, hands down. Now, I had met Michael through Cherry Vanilla, And Michael was a very, very successful uh, um, producer and arranger and pianist in the New York City music scene. Um, Actually, he took me, taken me under his wing because the, 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 The whole time that I was in Cherry Vanilla's band, I was the, the piano player. I was not the bass player. I had my wife, my then girlfriend, who turned out to be my wife at the time, um, bought me an upright piano because I, I, I said, you know, I really would like to learn how to play piano. I think it would help me to write songs. So she saved up her, her money from her job and bought me an upright piano. And uh, I set about teaching myself how to play keyboards. And then I got the gig with Cherry Vanilla as her piano player. That's how I met Michael Kamen. It's a very convoluted story, Mitch. Great story. Keep going. I love it. It it makes sense to me. Um, So Michael uh, helped me because he was friends with Cherry Vanilla. He helped me uh, uh, with my piano playing chops. I get to JFK. Uh, and uh, and uh, I, I take twenty cents or something like that, and drop it into a payphone, call Michael Caiman up and said, "Hi, Michael, it's Kasim. Um, I hear that Todd Rundgren is looking for a bass player. I'd like to uh, I'd like to audition, or I'd like to know if, about auditioning for the the gig." And he said, I, 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 I didn't know you were a bass player. I thought you were a piano player. And I said, well, yeah, I am. But uh, my original instrument or an instrument that I'm very comfortable with is bass. So he said, OK, I'll recommend you. <laughs> he didn't even ask if I was any good at it. He just said that he would recommend me, recommend me hands down. So he called Roger Powell, who was putting together the auditions for for the Utopia gig, because he uh, Todd was uh, was on his way back from India. Todd had spent the month, the previous month in India, mopeding around, just checking things out, and um, uh, and I, I I borrowed twenty dollars from my uncle and took an Adirondack Trailways bus up to um, Woodstock. I met with Roger Powell and Willie Wilcox, who were the keyboard player and the drummer for Utopia. And I learned uh, about maybe five or six songs, which to me, that material at that time, that was the prog phase, prog rock phase of Utopia. So it was very, very complicated stuff. Um, but for, uh, and I'm not entirely sure why even relating the story to you, I'm, I'm, I'm going back in my mind and saying, how did I do that? But there were songs that I'd learned, uh, and that were, they had not only just like incredible key changes, uh, key signature changes, but time signature changes. Um, they, they happened to be, uh, long songs. They weren't your average three minute pop songs. These were six, seven minute prog rock epics that I, I had to learn within uh, a day because Todd was returning from India the next day. And, uh, and, and so he came the next day, he came and he, he met me. We played. Uh, he asked me to sing because one of the uh, and this goes back to the beginning of the conversation, one of the integral parts of getting the gig was singing. Um, and I, I, I sang a little bit for him and I played a little bit of piano. I, I I think I did a song that I did with cherry vanilla at that time. And then I, I, I played the five or six songs that I learned with Roger and Willie and, uh, and I went home. Uh, they said, okay, we'll, we'll let you know, uh, if you, you know, we'll let you know what we're, what we're going to do over the next few days. Well, the next day I got a phone call from Roger Powell welcoming me to utopia. What I didn't know was that Todd did not want me in the band. Uh, He (laughs) didn't he didn't think that I was uh, experienced enough. I had never been on tour before. My the the extent of my traveling was the tri-state area, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey. Um, And I had never recorded a record I had worked in recording studios, but I had never done a record with a band. Um, I had never um, really, uh, I I was green. There's no other way to put it, but I was completely a greenhorn. And I was a kid, too. I had just turned 20 years old. And Todd's feeling was that, uh, you know, we're an established national recording act, national touring and recording act. We need somebody who knows what they're doing. And much to their credit, and and my good fortune, Roger Powell and Willie Wilcox went out on a limb and said, "We think that Kasim is the right guy for the band, and we would really appreciate you giving him a chance. If he doesn't work, we'll be the first to admit it, and we will, you know, go with with whoever Todd recommended that he wanted back in the band." Um, but I worked out and yeah. uh, and i rose to the occasion and uh and uh, and i'm just that that was my 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 path was set in stone at that time yeah i mean it's crazy
0: to think that we're talking about around 1973 we're we're, we're chasing into 50 years of that moment it's incredible yeah
1: well, it was 1976 oh, 76 it, okay that's okay and um and, and i had i had no i I, I, I did, didn't think that I got the gig. I did not think that I would ever get that that job. I did it for, I did that audition for the experience of doing it. and, uh, and I'm, I, I was grateful to get the opportunity, but I, I, my attitude was,'ll you know chances are that you're just going to be knocking around for, for however much longer, and something will happen, something will come up. Uh, but this is probably not going to be the, the trajectory that you, uh, that you're going to have. Um, anyway, long story short, uh, it was, and, um, and then i uh, I just started uh, working with the band. and lo and behold, four months later, I am in uh, in England opening up for the Rolling Stones with uh, with you know at Nebworth playing in front of literally a half a million people. Um, and, and it, I mean, it was just, it was really kind of a, you know, Alice in Wonderland, uh, Cinderella story that, uh, that to this day I find fascinating even to relate to another person.
0: And, and what's, what's it like working with Todd? Because beyond Utopia, you continued on working with him. I'm going to assume there's a friendship there. I mean, many, many years, Todd uh, storied musicians, uh, you know, Hall of Famer without it, without a doubt. What's it like being in that orbit for so long?
1: Um, I think I, I think I could safely say that uh, uh, there hasn't been one particular musician that has worked with Todd longer than I have on a consistent basis, um, and I, I, I have to tell myself that if there wasn't some kind of uh, really, really deep and, and lasting chemistry between the two of us on, on, on many levels. Um, I wouldn't still be there. I would, I, I, either he would have moved on from me or I would have moved on from him. Um, I love working. I love working with Todd. I find it, uh, um, both extremely rewarding and at times extremely frustrating. Um, but, uh, but the, the, the rewards far outweigh the frustrations, uh, uh, and it's only because if it was, you know, if it, if it were, were it my career, maybe I'd do some things differently, but that's why everybody has their own careers and their own paths. Um, uh, you know, uh, it, it, the, the frustrations are, are are just like, gee, I wish we would have done that song or uh, I, I, I wish that this record would have been recorded a little differently or uh, I wish he would work more or I wish he would work less. So, you know, it's always there's always something to complain about, really. <laughs> but I love I, I love him like a brother and uh, I wouldn't trade the last 45 years for all the tea in China.
0: There's something interesting too about that band in terms of, you talked about progressive music and many people would say that Utopia was one of the originators, founder of that progressive rock movement. There's also an aspect of the band that was very pop friendly. And then when you add in the layer of how people perceive Todd in terms of alternative inventive adventurous there was a lot happening and i'm wondering as a bass player where are you pulling influences from how are you evolving as a player when the genre is moving in such a fluid and and what i'm going to assume a very creative but strange way as
1: well um i don't i don't know that there was ever a conscious thought on my part to uh to, to think to, to say to myself this is the kind of player that I, I want to be this is the this is the kind of style that I want to uh, achieve or that I, I want to excel at. I think from from myself uh, it was always about how do I serve the song um, or the artist uh, what what works what in my mind works best for this particular piece of music uh, or this record or, Um, because you have to remember too, that not only was I working, uh, with Todd and Utopia, uh, there was never an exclusive agreement with myself and Todd. I was, I I was always working on other things as well. Not only my own material, but, uh, I, I guess probably the most, uh, popular example or the most, um, recognizable example is meatloaf and when i sat down to do that first record um i was uh, i i was only in utopia for about eight months at the time um, and we, we learned that all, all those songs from Paradise by the Dashboard Lights to Bad Out of Hell and Took the Words and Two Out of Three and, uh, and All Revved Up and ev- everything else that was on that first record, uh, we learned that myself and Todd and Roy Bitten and Max Weinberg as a band. Um, And and then we went into the studio and recorded it. I I, I listened to the bass playing on that record uh, so many years later. And I say, geez, I can't imagine how I got away with playing that Uh, because that was just, you know, I was just I was freestyling. I was playing stuff that uh, that these days or even 10 years later, you would never in a million years play on a record. It was just uh, I was I was I was all over the place. But nobody stopped me. And I think that 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 helped me to to kind of um, find my own uh you know, water seeks its own level. (laughs) And, uh, and that's, that's how I approached playing. Uh, wasn't long after that, that I did, uh, I did other records like for the Indigo Girls or, uh, Celine Dion or, uh, or a bunch of other people, Joan Jett or, um, Holland Oates and, uh, uh, Richie Sambora that all those, those, those early years were my, my formative years in terms of, of how I approach playing uh, with other people's music.
0: So so let's talk a bit about that album because like, you know, it, it could be a casual conversation where we're just talking about music, but we're jumping from people like Todd Rundgren into not just meatloaf, but being foundational on this album that to this day is maybe considered one of the greatest rock albums of all time with Bad Out of Hell. And you talk about, This idea of, again, never would we even fathom someone playing that type of music on that type of song. But I could push back to you and say, never in our world could we imagine ever hearing an album like that at all. I mean, you're in an environment with Meatloaf and Jim Steinman. And again, it seems like this is a very adventurous time. We're moving into rock and rock operas. We're moving into Mm -hmm. albums that have themes. I mean, concept albums is still something somewhat new in the world. At what point are you looking around this room beyond the Max Weinbergs and Todd Rundgrens and thinking, this is something completely different? Do you know when you're recording it that this is going to be what we now know is bad out of hell do you think this is so weird people are not gonna how are they gonna get this with like where, where's your headspace at for this album
1: um i i, I it, that's that's a it, it, it's a difficult question to answer because um i i really thought at the time that um that it was just a a, a kind of a A one-off. You know, I didn't think that there was, uh, that there was any, I, I, I have to be careful because I don't want to disparage the music because it it can't be. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. But I think it's one of those, I think it's one of those situations where just the stars just align and you are, uh, it's just everything happens to come together at, at the right time in the right place, with the right musicians, with the right music and uh, and it just takes on a a, a, a life of its own. I, honestly, Mitch, I never after we finished that record, after I finished the basic tracks on that record, there were some overdubs that were done up in Woodstock. And I did some background vocals on it. Um, I, I, never thought that I would hear that music again. I thought it would just, you know, kind of be one That's of those crazy. records. That's that, crazy. Think about that. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it would be one of those records that you did. I got paid for it. Um, and, and I, uh, you know, just move, move along, keep it, keep moving along. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and about a year and a half later, after I had completely forgotten it, um, I was in my car driving from my folks' house in the city up to Woodstock to start uh, either a Utopia record or a Utopia tour. I'm not entirely sure which. And I was listening to the radio, and I heard uh, something that was oddly familiar. And I could not for the life of me remember where I heard that. So one of those things I'm sure that most people can can relate to, you hear something and you know you've heard it before, but you just can't remember where. And it was one of those moments. And then a, a, just a, a, a bell rang and I was like, Oh, right, 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 right. That's the record that I played on a year and a half ago. Um, and I, now I remember where I heard that song. I think it was bad out of hell. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I thought to myself that it was really cool that those guys got their album made out, uh, and on the radio, because I, 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 did remember that there was some, uh, there were some hiccups in the, uh, in, in the final mixing and they had Jimmy Iovine come in and, and remix some tracks. And then a, a, a few other people were mixing, uh, bad out of hell. Uh, and, uh, and then I think I think that Todd ultimately did all the final mixes on that. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But in any case, the point is, is that uh, I, I heard it. I heard it on the radio and about, I don't know, maybe a couple of three months after that, it just exploded. And uh, to date, it's one of the all time biggest selling records um, next to Dark Side of the Moon, Thriller, uh, Hotel California and a few others.
0: And rightfully so, for sure. And, and again, yeah. this wasn't a one-off necessarily. You continued to work with Meatloaf. I mean, to the point where you you eventually become his musical director. So again, a relationship is is, is bond and trusted. What are you thinking as an evolution? Because now you're in in an interesting place where Bad at the Hell is so phenomenally successful that I'm I'm sure there's not conversations about trying to topple it. But musicians at that point are trying to figure out what's my path forward in a world where you're never going to hit that type of ascent.
1: It, it, you know, it, lightning hardly ever. I mean, rarely is it, rarely it leaves the door open. <laughs> but when you say hardly ever, uh, it, it you know, like uh, almost never makes it a little bit more uh, urgent. And uh, it, lightning hardly ever strikes in the same place twice. Uh, and for some reason, I, I don't know why. No, I don't. I don't know that anyone would ever be able to explain it. Um, lightning struck again for meatloaf. It's
0: crazy it story. It
1: wasn't even so much so much meatloaf as it was Jim Steinman, because Jim really is uh, what was the impetus for all that music you know, as, as much as I love meat and, uh, and, and enjoyed the time that I'm working with him or that I've worked with him and all the the stuff that I've done with him, it's really Jim that was the catalyst for all that music. Yes. Meatloaf sang it. Yes. Meatloaf sold it. But, uh, but I think it was Jim's concept of this, this, this music that's that speaks to all these dis- disenfranchised people and and the misfits in the world, uh, and the angst of the teenager, and uh, and and the the tongue in cheek and the you know the double entendres and all that stuff. Jim just has uh, has such a unique gift to uh, to do that in, in 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 the confines of a pop song, um, so. So they they do this. Uh, they, there's this huge gap between Bad Out of Hell one and Bad Out of Hell two, uh, and um, and then Bad Out of Hell two comes out in 1993, and uh, and just sells another 17 million.
0: Yeah, we're we're, I mean, we're talking two decades, which is what makes it even crazier.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and you would never in a million years think that that Meatloaf could make, uh, you know, uh, that much of a a, 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 of a comeback after after Bad Out of Hell won. But he did.
0: Well, not only that, 93, we're talking about Nirvana, Soundgarden, the Seattle scene. It wasn't primed for rock the way it might have been even in the later 80s.
1: No, and and you know, uh, I mean, much to his credit, Jim. Uh, much to Jim's credit is that uh, "Bad Out of Hell" Two spent that album spent six weeks at number one on the Billboard uh, Hot 100 charts. The single was number one for eleven weeks. And that's just unheard of. Right. It's I mean, that's a, I'd do anything of. for love, but I won't do that. Yeah, huge Correct. song. Yeah. yeah
0: just an amazing story I'm also curious I mean you're part of these bands you're connected to these artists you've done solo work and part of the catalyst for this conversation is your your brand new solo album mm-hmm. talk a little bit about how you're balancing things as a creative, player, as a bass player in terms of, well, I, lightning keeps striking here for me with these artists. But at the same time, I, I sense from reading a bit about your history that you are pulled to create your own thing, that you are pulled to do your own solo music. Mm-hmm. When does that really ignite for you? And what what is it like in relation to usually being in a scenario where it's either a band or you're following a name that you know, everyone knows type of thing?
1: I, uh, I I always wanted to do my own music. I I I always wanted to be uh, a successful singer songwriter. Uh, that was that was always my dream from day one. Um, I love playing in bands, but my my real passion, my real passion, my my what I gravitate towards is writing uh, my own music and singing my own songs and performing my own music. I, uh, I, I found myself constantly towing the line between being, uh, in other people's bands and, um, and and devoting time to my own, uh, my own career, my, my solo career. Uh, and I think that, uh, that I, I tried, um, I tried doing it. A little bit too soon when I was at, when when I was in my early twenties, um, I was convinced. You know, I was, for lack of a better term, and I I, I I hope it's okay to say this, but I was I was full of piss and vinegar when I was it's in. Great my to early say that. 20s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I was I was convinced that I had what it takes to um, to to have a successful solo career or to be a successful one person act. Um, And I didn't realize that that there are very few people that can achieve that. So I constantly um, walk this tightrope between, you know, desperately wanting wanting to be successful at that and at the same time um, wanting to. You know, wanting to always kind of better myself as a musician, working with as many people as I possibly could, playing in this band, playing in that band, playing on this person's record, touring with this one, uh, going to do a recording session with this one, um, and and I kind of got the wind taken out of my sails early on when my first record uh, didn't didn't do all that well, and it was it it was because I I just. I didn't give myself enough time working on it. Uh, I, 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 didn't put, <laughs> I don't want to say I didn't put the footwork in because I certainly did. But, um, but you know, it takes, it, it takes a certain person to, uh, to be able to, to write a three minute song that speaks to a lot of people. Um, and, And it's a craft and you work on that. You work at that craft and you hone it and you do it constantly, 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 constantly. It's like anything else in life. Um, And I, 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 I hadn't achieved that, uh, that, that place where I, I I could do it and I got discouraged and I kind of stepped away from it for a little while. Never, never completely. But uh, I, I spent the, the majority of, uh, of the 80s, the rest of the 80s, because I did my first solo record in 1981. And I, and when it wasn't as successful as I had hoped, um, I, 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 I spent the rest of the next 10 or, or 12 years working with other people. And I kind of put my, my solo career on the back burner. Um, I, I was continually writing and and working on, on on becoming a better songwriter. But, uh, but I spent that the rest of that time with Meatloaf, uh, Hall and Oates, Joan Jett, um, and a few other acts, uh, and Todd too, as a matter of fact. Um, and it wasn't until the late nineties that I I decided that, you know what, I am really going to take some time for myself and, and start working on my own music again. And I did that. And uh, I did uh, another solo record in the early 2000s. I think it was 2004. I'm very, very proud of that record. It, it was at a time when uh, people was, were doing a lot of independent music uh, and it was easy to self-release uh, and sell it on the Internet. Uh, and that's what I did. Um, didn't have a record label but i was uh, i was happy doing that uh, along with my work with Meatloaf and Todd uh, and i found kind of a a a, a nice a, a nice place that i was comfortable in working with other people and and being able to go out do my own music uh, do a, uh, some solo shows here and there um and then somewhere uh, uh, over the next i guess 10 years uh, I kept working on my stuff. I, I put out another couple of solo records and, and uh, put a band together and started working on, on, on my solo material more. And uh, yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm at a really good point in my uh, in my musical life where uh, I get to do a lot of everything and uh, and I'm OK with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the new album's got some interesting facts on it. You do a cover of a Nick Lowe song, which is really interesting. And then there are a couple of players on your album that the world knows, namely Keith Scott and, and Mickey Curry from Brian Adams' band. But again, we associate them with only being in Brian's band. They do a lot of amazing work with other bands. Mm-hmm. There's a unique thing happening on this album. And I'm wondering if you're sensing that as you get older, you you to a certain degree get freer in terms of what you're willing to do creatively. I was watching even some live shows of you at, at Daryl's place and just mm-hmm. watching the diversity of the music. And what feels to me when I'm watching you perform a real sense of comfort versus, and again, I'm, I'm not saying it's an age thing or it's not an age thing. There are people who are in similar age as you, as you are, that mm-hmm. are more on the winding down side, and happy to mm-hmm. do the drop in gigs on the weekend and the the you know the the corn fests or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it feels like you feel very creative and relieved a little bit at this point in your career.
1: I, I, you know, I. I have a great time doing my own music. I, I love uh, For instance, I'm out on the road with Todd right now and we do, we've been, uh, doing shows since October 1st. We're, we're kind of almost at the end of of a six week tour right now. Um, and I, uh, the, the time that I am on stage where I am one of six other musicians on stage and I just, I look out in the audience and, uh, and there is a certain amount of uh, of gratitude that not only do I have, but that I'm it's palpable coming from the, the venue the, from the couple of thousand people that are, 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 are at the shows uh, at any given date. And, and, you know, it's 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 a real it, it's such a great thing to say that what I do in life makes people happy you know, they forget about their, uh, hopefully they, you know, they put their problems aside for an hour and a half, two hours and, and they listen to some really good music, uh, and sing along and, uh, uh, and remember where they were the first time they heard that song or, you know, or how important that, what that particular piece of music was to the soundtrack of their personal life. Um, and, and I'm just, I'm filled with, with the sense of, uh, of gratitude that I get to, I, I, this is, this is where my, my particular journey in life has taken me. When I do my own shows, it magnifies that a hundred times. And, uh, and, and listen, I am not breaking any attendance records. I place, I play venues that are, you know, 200 to three, 400 seat venues. Um, I don't sell, hundreds of thousands of records. Um, I sell thousands of records, but that's okay. The people that, uh, that enjoy my music, uh, are, are so grateful and so supportive and so loyal that, um, I I, I am, I, I really consider myself one of the luckiest people on the planet. And I'm just Uh, I am so blessed because I, I, I play a place like Daryl's house. I, I know half the people in the audience (laughs) by their first name. Um, I am constantly calling people out, uh, from the stage and, uh, and I just have the best time in the whole world doing what I do. Um, and because I know that that I am, I, I'm, I'm providing, <laughs> for lack of a better term, I'm providing a service that is just so heartfelt um, that uh, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I, I, who could ask for more?
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing too because I feel like even in this conversation we're we're, we're jumping decades and timelines but there's so yeah. many things that I want to talk about and I'm trying to be respectful of your time a couple more sure. things that I I'm, I'm super excited about one is it's one thing to play with Joan Jet it's another to actually be in the Black like you or a member or are a member of of the Black Hearts yeah. What, how do how does one go from where you were to joan jet how how did that introduction happen and what did you think about being in a band like that only because you know music like that we're starting to strip away at things you can see connection points between even utopia and what was happening with meatloaf or Patty Smythe and on Joan jet and some of the other artists you've worked with there's this different type of stripping down and rawness of the music. And I'm, I'm wondering what attracted you to it or why do you think these artists felt you were okay to be a part of that?
1: Uh, um, well, I'll take, uh, it's it's, it's like a three, four part question. Yeah, let's ramble. Uh, That's what we do. (laughs) First, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer your first, your last, uh, comment first. I, I, I'm pretty good at what I do. So, um, so the fact that Joan, uh, would, would say, yeah, Kassim would be, uh, would be okay in the band. Um, you know, part of, of being a successful musician, uh, it's not so much about, um, it's not so much how you, uh, playing well, it's, it's pretty much playing well with others. (laughs) You know, uh, you could be the best player in the whole world. If you don't work well in a band situation, you're never going to get a gig. Um, you know, and people are going to not want to work with you. So, um, I happen to, to be good at what I do and, and and I'm nice to be around. (laughs) So, so for Joan, you know, who is, is a very, very down to earth, um, um, I don't want to say simple because she's not simple. She's a, she's a, a, a very deep um, person. Um, but, uh, but the, the music for me was, was really, um, it, it, it didn't take a lot of figuring out. It's like, I know exactly what it takes to, to be the bass player in this band. Uh, and the, the whole thing with Joan was, When I started working with her, my 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 best friend in in the whole in my entire music career uh, was a guy by the name of Tommy Price or is a guy by the name of Tommy Price. Tommy um, and I grew up together. We've known each other since we were 11 years old. Uh, He uh, we were a couple of uh, just a handful of musicians from our area on Staten Island that became successful. Tommy went on after high school to work with Willie DeVille in Mink DeVille and uh, and then he was he played in Scandal for the longest time with yeah, I mean,
0: Billy Idol Blue Oyster yeah. Cult I mean he's Correct. he's a dude
1: <laughs> so so Tommy and I have been friends our entire lives and and Tommy at at one point in uh, in the New York City music scene was one of the most sought after session drummers as a matter of fact, that's how we wound up playing with Billy, with Billy Idol. Um, they needed a session drummer and they called Tommy. He came in. They had uh, done the entire record, White Wedding, uh, to, uh, to a drum machine. And Tommy came in and played that, that whole record um, after the fact.
0: And he was coming off at the time, if I'm not mistaken, of of Warrior, like scandals, massive, like it's
1: crazy. Uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so Joan, uh, and uh, I, I, I guess Joan called him for a session. Uh, or Jones manager Kenny Laguna called Tommy for a session and said would you come in and play uh, we're just recording a record uh, we need a drummer on X number of tracks can uh, can you do it Tommy said yes and they said oh by the way we need a bass player uh, do you know do you have any recommendations and Tommy said uh, sure I'll recommend my, my friend Kasim he's just off the road with utopia Utopia at that point was pretty much on a Permanent sabbatical, um, so I was kicking around New York. I didn't have anything uh, pressing to do. I wasn't on the road, and Tommy called me. I came in, and so the two of us, because, because we had grown up together and uh, and we've worked together on countless projects, we were uh, as a as a rhythm section, a really really tight good rhythm section. And for Joan, it just worked perfectly. So that's how I got that gig. After after we did that record, uh, which was Joan's good music, uh, they said to us, uh, you know, we need to go out on the road. Are you guys available to go out on the road? And we both were.
0: It's amazing. One other project before I let you go, because I'm so curious about it is um, and I I had no idea that you were connected to this and it's just something I always love, which was Broadway moving out Billy Joel, uh-huh. you know, yeah. also with Twyla Tharp, who I'm a huge fan of. I think her book on uh-huh. creativity is just next to, just incredible book. Mm-hmm. And again, like we have to frame this, that when moving out happened, there wasn't like green day and Alanis musicals. This was one mm-hmm. of the breakthrough ones yeah. and it was seen as being really strange. Like this is based on a Billy Joel song and Billy Joel mm-hmm. is, it, is it the story of Billy Joel? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so again, like to me, I see some real connective tissue between things like bad at a hell and then you doing something like moving out on Broadway. But at the same time, I'm just curious about how you're threading this needle and landing. Like now you're working in Broadway. It's it's wild
1: to me. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, there's a, uh, they actually have a funny Twyla Thorpe's, uh story. If you have a, a second, I got all the time um, for you, man. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so I am, uh, on the road with utopia, I'm working, uh, I was in my early, uh, probably my mid twenties and, uh, somehow I'm not entirely sure how I got this phone call. I get a phone call that somebody is, uh, is putting together a movie and, uh, they want to know if I want, I would like to audition for a, a, a movie role, uh, because it's a musical. And I said, yeah, sure. I'll, you know, I, I wasn't. I was between tours, between records. So I had some time and uh, I said, they said, OK, well, you'll be auditioning for Milos Foreman for uh, the uh, uh, one of the characters in the uh, movie version of Hair. Uh, and I said, oh, OK. Now, uh, I knew Milos Forman, who, who he was from my dad who was a big Western fan and I think Milos had directed a couple of, of really big Western movies. Uh, I'm sure I could Google him in two seconds and tell you which ones but off the top of my head I can't, can't remember. But in any case uh, very very fam- famous uh, Hollywood director uh, and um, one of the people, not one of, but the the choreographer for that movie was Twyla Tharp. So um, so I learned a song from the cast album and I went to audition for Milos Foreman. I completely ruined the audition uh, because I forgot the words to the song at the, at the penultimate moment where I am in a room, there's Milos, the other producers, and, a, and maybe 10 or 15 other people, and I blanked on the song. I completely blanked. Uh, and uh, they said to me, that's okay. It's okay. Can you play us anything that showcases your singing? So I sat down and I played something on the piano for them and I, I made it past that part of the audition. The second part of the audition was dance. Uh, and I had to go audition for Twyla and I, I am not a dancer. I am a white kid from Staten Island, New York who can barely you can barely put two steps together, on stage, um, and I get to this audition with Twila Tharp, and her assistant says, "Okay, this is this this is what you're going to do. Here are the moves. I'm going to show you the moves." And he just starts flailing his arms around and counting down from ten, ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, and all each number is associated with a different move that. It, it, it just looks like some alien came down and zapped him, and he's like writhing on the floor and can't get up. Um, and uh, he said, Okay, you got it? And I'm like, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> he says, Okay, I'm going to call Twyla in, and, and she's going to watch you dance. And I'm like, Okay, great. <laughs> Wonderful. Sounds Twyla like a nightmare. <laughs> comes, Twyla Thought comes in, and he says, Okay, are we ready? One, two, three, go. And I just, I lost it. I, I just said, I'm sorry. I, I, I tried, but I can't do that. She went off on me like you cannot believe. She cursed. Uh, she said, she said, I cannot believe they send me people who can't dance. This is so messed up. And she's using 4 letter words, uh, and just going off on me. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I can't. I'm sorry. Yeah, if yeah, here's he a bass, was. let's see what you can do with that, Twyla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so cut to 20 years later, and uh, and I am uh, uh, playing in the, the Billy Joel Moving Out uh, on Broadway show, which I had such a wonderful time doing. The band. Uh, Killer band.
0: The- like The music was insane on that show
1: yeah, well, that was put together by my friend Tommy Burns, who at the time was Billy's musical director. And uh, that whole show was put together by Tommy, and the the trombone player was Kevin Osborne, who was the musical director for the band. Um, but it was it was such a a, a great experience uh, going into Manhattan uh, every night, uh, you know, six times a week and um, and playing. Billy songs that, uh, it was, it was just a, it was a real, I played guitar, uh, actually right right back to, to my roots rhythm guitar. Uh, and it was just a great, great experience. I loved every second of that show.
0: You bring it up to Twyla where you're like, Hey, I'm going to tell you a story.
1: (laughs) I didn't think that that would be a really smart thing to do. She's not the friendliest person in the world. And I, I, I doubt that she would have remembered it um but uh, but uh, it, it, that's just one for the book <laughs> for me anyway it's
0: amazing yeah. it's been it's such a treat catching up with you again brand new solo album ready for people to check out. And I yeah. mean, there's so many stories we didn't get into Blue Oyster Coat. We didn't get into Richie Sambor. We didn't get into Indigo Girls and Hollow Notes and a ton of other crazy work that you've done, including, by the way, you, you were in Yellow Matter Custard, which was this yeah. incredible Beatles cover. It's just a great, great mm-hmm. band. Um, so I just want to thank you so much for your time. Let people know where they can find out more about what you're at, what you're sharing, where they can pick up the new album.
1: Well, they can find out everything they need to know about me uh, on my website, casim.sultan.com, which is pretty simple. And uh, you can always go to my Facebook page. There's always some funny posts, uh, videos, and stuff like that. Uh, my new record is on Deco Entertainment. It's a. Gr- I'm so grateful to the guys at Deco. They're, they're really an artist-centric album uh, label and uh, record company. And I'm very, very proud of this record produced by Phil Thornalley, which is another thing that we didn't talk about my work with Phil, uh, who's a brilliant songwriter and record producer. Um, And uh, it's a great record. I I highly recommend it (laughs) to anyone (laughs) who likes good pop music. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I will be touring behind it next year. So stay tuned for more uh more solo shows and more music and uh i'm just uh like i said it's it's, it's wonderful to speak with you mitch and uh I thank you for having me on your show uh-huh.